Amen. Take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 as we come to this last Sunday of 2013. We come to the time of year in which people typically start taking stock, start thinking back on the year that is almost past now, and start thinking about what has taken place and start anticipating what is coming. Uh, and so now in the news and the newspaper magazines, everything that you're seeing, all the headlines that you see are what has happened this past year. Uh, and so you see headlines about what were the most memorable events of 2013, uh, who are the stars that we lost uh, this year in 2013. And so uh, now as we are getting so close to the start of the new year, we start seeing things that come up about what do we expect next year. Uh, and so you start seeing headlines about what is the new tech gadget of 2014. Are you going to have the iWatch? Uh, is that coming out this year? What is coming? And, and so all these things go on at the end of the year. But the, uh, the one main question that everybody has and that has been talking about over the past two weeks as we come to the end of 2013 is in 2014, are we still going to have Duck Dynasty? That has been the driving question of the news. And so it seems now maybe we have a resolution that we will still have Duck Dynasty in 2014. Uh, now, I mentioned Duck Dynasty somewhat tongue-in-cheek as, uh, as we start this morning. Uh, if you aren't aware uh, and you don't have TV or something like that, uh, Duck Dynasty is this show about these guys who hunt ducks and create this line of supplies for duck hunters. Uh, has got in a, a been a major story in the news due to uh, the believers on that show taking a stance, standing and saying that they believe homosexuality is a sin. And, and so there's a lot of other things that went along with this. Uh, but uh, but he the one of the main guys on the show basically said that we are all sinners and that we're all in need of forgiveness from God. Now, my point this morning isn't really anything about Duck Dynasty at all. But my point is everything about the reality that you and I live in the midst of a culture that is increasingly opposed to the truth of the gospel. We live in the midst of, a, of an area and a world in which uh, the, the world has turned against the truth of God and sees the gospel as something that is uh, outdated, that is bigoted, that is divisive, that is something that should be rejected. Uh, and so uh, the reality that we need to understand as believers at the end of 2013, looking into 2014, is that we as believers are in the midst of a tradition that in which the gospel has always been opposed. The gospel has never been something that has been universally accepted by all those who hear it. There's never been a point in Christianity in which the church has not faced opposition. But the gospel always elicits some kind of opposition and some kind of challenge. And so we, Grace Baptist Church, as we sit at the end of 2013, as we look into 2014, we understand that we, like believers throughout all of history, face challenges right now. And the reality is that I believe that we, as Grace Baptist Church, are facing some distinct challenges that are before us. We live in the midst of a culture that is growing increasingly antagonistic toward the truth of Christ. But at the same time, I believe there are also personal challenges that we at Grace have experienced. This seems to be a time in which, more so than any other time that I remember at Grace, we've had a series of difficulties that many of our families have been facing. 
difficulties in which they've had loss of loved ones, major financial crises, major health issues that have just seemed to come all at once. And so as we stand here this day, the last Sunday of 2013, we recognize that we live amidst challenge and that we are a church that still faces challenges. And so my question for us this morning is how do we respond to challenge? How do we biblically, faithfully, as believers, as Grace Baptist Church, respond to the challenges that come our way? Well, that's where I want us to turn to Acts chapter 4. In this passage, we see the young church in Acts face its first major challenge. And it's something that we can learn from that points us to how we as believers and we as a church must respond to the challenges that we face today. So pick up in Acts chapter 4. We are going to be following along, and we're going to see in just a few moments what is going on, but we're getting a glimpse here of the church in Acts chapter 4 that follows after Pentecost. You remember Pentecost in which God did this amazing work of pouring out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples at that time. Peter stands up, he begins preaching, and as he proclaims Christ, thousands of people turn to Christ in salvation. And and so the church multiplies and grows exponentially in just that short time. Uh, And so the believers are constantly gathering together. They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They're constantly devoting themselves to worship, spending time together, breaking bread together, uh, encouraging one another. This is what we see constantly going on in the life of the church, and God is continually adding to their numbers. It's a time of blessing and growth for the early church. But not much time goes by, perhaps just a few weeks, and we see the first major challenge that this young church faces. Peter and John were walking up to the temple as they did every day, going up to the time uh, in which they go up to pray. And as they went, they looked and they saw standing outside the gate or sitting outside the gate, a man who was lame from his mother's womb. A man who was sitting there begging, probably day after day for most of his life, sitting there waiting for people to give alms to him. And so Peter and And uh, Peter and John go up to him as they pass by. Peter looks at him uh, and says, neither silver nor gold do I have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And so this man who has never stood on his feet before rises up. His feet are made strong, his legs are made strong, and he begins to stand up. He walks and he starts jumping around. Now, if you can imagine a scene like that, It's something that caused a little bit of a stir. Everybody who's going in there has seen this man sitting outside the door for years. And and so now they see this same man who is now jumping up and and running around. And so the crowds start gathering. And so as the crowds gather there, Peter does what Peter does. Peter just starts preaching to them. And, And so the very first thing that Peter does when he starts preaching to this crowd as they assemble around, and he looks to them and he says, Why are you amazed that this man is jumping around? Well, now they're probably thinking, Peter, what are you talking about? This guy's never walked before, and now he's jumping. But Peter says, why are you amazed? Because he was made well by Jesus Christ. That man who you crucified not long ago rose from the dead, now reigns on high, and it's by his power that this man walks. And so People start getting saved left and right as they hear the good news of Christ and what he has done. Well, the problem, though, 
is that the Jewish leaders don't like what is taking place. They see this huge crowd forming around the disciples. They see more and more turning to Christ. And Peter standing up and saying, hey, you remember how you crucified him? This guy that was crucified is now alive, and he is making people walk again. And so this leads to a time of crisis for the church in which the Jewish leaders take Peter and they throw him and they throw John into prison in order to deal with them. And so that's where we pick up uh, this morning, where they are dealing with these disciples. So Acts chapter 4, they throw Peter, John in prison. Uh, And so as they are thrown in prison, they start beginning that question and ask themselves, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this rising movement? What are we going to do about these guys who we have here in prison? You know, it's obvious that something has happened here. We can't deny that. We see him walking around. So what are we going to do? And so that's when they bring Peter and John into their presence, begin talking to them. Follow along with me, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say uh, about this. And so what can they say about it? This is the guy that they had walked by day after day for years there at the temple. They had probably actually given this man money before, and now they see him up and jumping around. There's nothing that they can do to deny that this happened. So they begin to make a plan for what they're going to do. Verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here's the plan. We can't hide what happened. So here's what we do. We'll command them that they can no longer speak the name of Jesus Christ. They cannot say anything at all about him, or we will take care of it. So they bring in Peter, they bring in John, they tell him, no longer, no longer are you to say anything in the name of Jesus. So what are they going to do? They have just been commanded, ordered, not to speak in the name of Jesus. Well, listen, what happens? Peter and John, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking uh, about what we have seen and about what we have heard. Who should we follow? Should we follow you who are telling us not to speak in the name of Jesus? Or should we follow God who commands us to proclaim the name of Christ? So just telling Peter and John to stop speaking in, in the name of Christ isn't working. It's not doing anything. So now... They go to the next step. We're going to threaten them to no longer speak the name of Jesus. Verse 21, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And so now they, that Peter and John are sent away. They're sent away, and they, now they have to go back to the rest of the believers and tell them the news that the Jewish leaders have cracked down on us. 
they have threatened us that we can no longer proclaim the name of Christ. They have made it so that we cannot do that and have given us that order under threat. Now keep in mind, as Peter and John are walking away, getting ready to talk to the other believers about what has happened, these Jewish leaders are the same ones who had put Jesus to death. And so Peter and John walk away knowing that the ones who put Jesus to, the de- to death are the same ones who are now telling them, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And so they recognize, they know that, they, that these leaders would have no qualms with putting them to death also. So what are they going to do? How are they going to respond when they are told, no longer may you speak in the name of Jesus Christ? They could go back to the rest of the believers. They could tell them what happened, and they could say, all right, we need to go underground. We need to be secret about Christ and and about spreading the gospel. Don't be vocal about it. Don't be up front, but be secret in the back door bringing it in. They could go to the rest of the believers, and they they could start figuring out a plan, laying out a plan for how they could get the Jewish leaders out of power and have somebody else in power who'd be more responsive to them. They could could go back to the rest of the believers and they could start just sitting down and hammering out and figuring out and say, we've got to figure out something in light of this situation. Or they could just even go back and tell him, don't worry about it, everything is going to be fine. Just keep on pressing on. What do they do in light of the opposition that they are facing? They go to God in prayer. There's no talking about it. There's no making plans. There's no figuring something out. They merely go to the Lord in prayer. This is how the church responds to challenge. You know, I've already mentioned this morning that I believe that we are facing some distinct challenges as Grace Baptist Church. As part of the church in America, we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly antagonistic toward the truth of the gospel. They're antagonistic toward, uh, toward the idea of truth in itself, So, of course, they're antagonistic toward the truth that there is only one way to God. The truth that we speak is a truth that is often considered offensive, that is often considered bigoted, that is often considered something that is so antiquated that nobody could possibly believe it. In an age that tolerates anything, the only thing that cannot be tolerated is a stance on absolute truth. And so, yes, we face distinct challenges as the church today as we attempt to proclaim that there is sin, that there is only one way to Christ. We stand that there is one gospel in the midst of a culture that that does not believe that and denies that truth and is opposed to that truth. So how do we stand in the midst of that? How do we respond to that challenge? But I've also mentioned that I think we're facing some distinct challenges for us as a body and some of the things that we've experienced. It seems that there are an unusually large number of our people who are hurting and suffering and have gone through some major ordeals in their life lately. We've had people who have experienced major financial setbacks. We've had folks who have had loved ones die. We have had folks who have experienced illness after illness after illness, family members who have gone through horribly difficult times. How do we face these kinds of challenges? How do we as Grace Baptist Church come to those things 
And how do we respond to those things? Do we scheme? Do we plan? Do we try to figure out what God is doing? I'm convinced that the fundamental response that the people of God must have toward challenges that come against us is to pray to the one who is able to bring about change. I'm convinced that that the example that we see here in Acts chapter 4 is the example that we are to follow as believers, as Grace Baptist Church today, that we go to the Lord in prayers when we face challenges, when we face these distinct things that come up against us. And so that's what we're going to see the church do right now. Follow along with me uh, in picking up in verse 23. We're going to see how the church responds in prayer. So let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. And I want to stop there before we get right into the prayer, what they actually said, because there's something here that I want you to get. I want you to see how they prayed here. Look at verse 24 and notice what it says. How does it say that they prayed? They prayed with what? They prayed with one accord. The, the emphasis here is on the unity that they're praying. In the original language, that, that, that idea there, one accord, is one word that has the idea of unity, of, of united together, being together. The picture is of the church being together with one mind, gathered together, crying out to God as they deal with these challenges that they're facing. They, all of them, recognize the seriousness of the situation that is against them, and so they immediately gather together, cry out to the Lord as one body. This wasn't just the apostles praying together. This wasn't the ones who had followed Jesus initially. This wasn't just the men praying together. This was all of the body praying together to their God, crying out to him. Now, listen to what they pray. All the believers gathered together, crying out, verse 24, saying this, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, in this prayer, as we look at this, there are two things that I want you to notice about how they prayed. First of all, they trusted in God as the sovereign Lord. Look at how they address God there in verse 24. Who do they address him as? They address him as Lord God who created everything. The word that's used there for Lord is an unusual one. It's not the one that's usually used uh, by the disciples and the Christian writers. It's a word that, that describes the absolute sovereignty, the reign of God. And so they cry out to him as the one who reigns over everything, who is sovereign over all things. And what do they call him? They call him the one who is the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. So what are they doing as they cry out to God? They're calling out to him as the one who reigns, as the one who is sovereign, who is still in control of the situation in which they are facing. 
If God was the one who predestined for the events of Christ's death to happen, if he is the one who reigned over that, then certainly he is the one who still reigned when those same Jewish leaders came upon them and said, stop speaking the name of Christ. They're calling out to him as the one who's saying, we know that you reign on your throne. And so we are trusting that you, God, are in control in the midst of this situation. So that's the first thing they do in this prayer. The second thing they do is they pray according to the need of what is going on at that time. Remember what they're facing right now. They're facing the Jewish leaders who have cracked down on them and said, no more. They're facing people who have the ability to have them persecuted, their land taken from them, their possessions stolen, even have them put to death. How do they respond to that? Do they ask God, make it stop? God, just make the persecution stop. That's not what they pray, is it? What do they pray They pray instead, God, give us the boldness to proclaim your truth in the midst of what is taking place right now. God, give us the confidence, the boldness to do that. Now, I want you to listen to how God responds to this prayer. Pick up in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, Luke's doing something here that I want you to see. He's cluing us in on something. If you look there, I think it's in verse 29 where it says that that they're asking for, for something. In the New American Standard, it says that they asked for God to give them confidence. And then in verse 31, it says God gives them boldness. Well, in the original language, the exact same word is used there. They ask for God to give them Boldness, and then verse 31, what does God give them? Boldness. So God's people recognize the challenge that they're facing, and so they ask for God to give them boldness in the midst of that challenge to stand firm in his word and proclaim his word, and what does God give them? God gives them exactly what they asked for. You see, God is pleased when his people come before him, when they, when they face these challenges, and they ask, God, give us boldness in the midst of this. God is pleased to answer the prayers of his people. You remember that God has said that he will give us what we ask for if we ask in his name? God is pleased to make his glory known in all the world. And so when God's people come before him and say, help, it, help me that be bold to make your glory known, do you think God is going to answer that prayer? Absolutely, God will give his people the boldness that they ask for to stand firm in his truth, to proclaim Christ to this world. God gives what his people ask for when they ask according to his purpose. Now, I want to bring this all back into the context of us here. I've said that I believe that we as a church are facing some distinct challenges right now. The response that we see from the people of God right here in Acts chapter 4 is instructive for us for how we are to respond as well. And so here are three things that I want us to see about us, Grace Baptist Church, and prayer. First, we must be united in prayer. And I think this is absolutely key. You and I, believers together, must be together in prayer. 
I have a friend of mine who likes to say that there are two things that make or break you spiritually. Your time spent in the word and your time spent in prayer. And I believe that those things are true also for the church. And when it comes to prayer, a church that is little in prayer is a church that is little in power for the kingdom. If we are going to be a church that is mightily used by God for his purposes, for his expansion of his kingdom, we must be a people who are in prayer. And, and as a pastor here, I, can't, I cannot ex- fully explain why I feel this. But I sense that we as a church are less dependent on prayer than we were at a time before. I sense that we have not, at this point, given ourselves to united prayer in the way that we once did before. As we look at the end of this year and as we look into 2014 about who we are and what we're going to be as a church and the challenges that we're facing, one thing I can guarantee you is that we must be a people of prayer. Second thing, we, like the church in Acts, must place our confidence entirely in the sovereignty of God. As they face threats for proclaiming Christ, They look to the one who is in control of all things as the sovereign God. As you and I stand in the midst of opposition in a world that does not believe the truth of the gospel, we must trust the one who reigns sovereign over all things. We must not trust in the ability of our government or in the ability of ourselves or in the ability of any other thing but the one who created all things. Finally, third thing, we must pray in light of the challenges we are facing. When the church in Acts experienced opposition, when they were told that they could no longer proclaim the name of Christ, they prayed according to their need of the time, which was need for boldness. And so I believe that our prayer as Grace Baptist Church must be that we also will pray that God will grant us boldness. Boldness in the midst of our families to stand firm in the gospel and proclaim the truth to our families. Boldness in our workplace to proclaim Christ. Boldness with our neighbors. Boldness in the restaurant. Boldness everywhere that we might go for the proclamation of the gospel, for God's glory to go forth in this world. We must ask God to grant us the boldness to stand firm on his truth for the gospel. But I believe we also need to pray for perseverance. Perseverance for our brothers and sisters in our church. You know, as, as I've said, I, there are a lot of folks here at Grace who are going through just some difficult times right now. Yes, we must pray for healing. Yes, we must pray that, that God will bring healing and restoration to lives that are hurting, lives that are broken. But at the same time, we want to ask and pray that God will grant God-honoring, Spirit-enabled, Christ-glorifying perseverance in the midst of those troubles, all for His glory as people walk through those difficulties. And last, I I believe that we as Grace Baptists need to pray that God will grant us a hungry dependence on him, a longing, a hunger for him to continue to work among us, I believe that one of the challenges that we as grace face right now is the temptation to run on autopilot. 
to go through our ministries, to go through Sunday school, to do the things that we normally do week in and week out as a church, but as we do those, not to have a hunger for God. One of the most dangerous things that we as a body could do is to walk through ministries, programs, or whatever we might have and do so without absolute hunger and desire and longing for the Lord. And so we need to pray that we as a body, we as individuals, will be characterized by a hunger and by an absolute dependence upon the one who is able to do all things. You know, I'll be honest, I, I, I look out and I see how God has worked in our church for years. And, and now I look and see some of the struggles that seem to have piled on so many people all at once. And I don't know exactly what God is doing. But I am confident of one thing, that I believe God is driving us to himself in prayer. That God is directing us toward himself to be a body who is united together, bowing down before him in prayer. And I'm convinced that the future of Grace Baptist Church, our usefulness in the kingdom, the impact that we make on this city, on this state, nation, in Peru, around the world, is in large measure tied to how we as a body are a praying body. Let us be like the church in Acts that came together, not in planning and figuring things out, but that came together, united, pouring themselves out before the one who is able to do all things. So this morning, let's do that. Let's pray together. Let's be on our faces, on our knees, calling out to him, united together in prayer. Let's go to him right now. Father, we confess that you are sovereign Lord, that you reign, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and all the things that are in them. And Lord, we confess that you are sovereignly working out your purposes as we live in the midst of a culture that is seemingly to be more opposed to your truth, seemingly more secular day by day. And as we experience hurt and difficulty in the midst of our own body, Lord, we confess that you remain sovereign. And so, Lord, we turn to you as the God over all things. Do your work among us, all for your glory. Unite us together around your throne in worship and in prayer. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.